Years ago, there was a, a, a couple who were attending this church. They were people that were in the process of becoming good friends of ours, which they still are, even though they moved out of state some years ago. And they were getting together with another family in this church. The, the two families lived not far from each other, nearly across the street, in fact. And they were getting together on like a Sunday afternoon, getting the kids together to play, to share a meal. You know, just, just uh, hey, let's, we think we could be friends. Let's get, to, let's get together and get to know each other, kind of visit kind of thing. So they, they, they did that. And afterwards, since I knew both families, reports kind of filtered down to me about their afternoon together. And by all accounts, everybody had a great time. But uh, something kind of funny also came out, and it was before they got together, both couples had been just a little bit apprehensive about opening their family lives up to the other. Both of these families had gone through some turbulent times in the not-too-distant past. However, neither really knew this about the other, and each was a bit worried that when they started you know, comparing notes and family stories, then their family would come off looking bad in comparison to their new friends and their life together, their lives together. And of course, what they found out <clears throat> when they started opening up to each other was that neither family was the put-together, uh, completely well-adjusted, ideal family that the other thought they were. Both had known hardship and tragedy. Both had known personal failure and experienced the embarrassment that results when things you just assume not know, uh, you just assume that no one know, uh, come out and and uh, become. Uh, where did I lose my spot here? I'm going to blame the cold medication. They. Uh, Neither of them had been, I actually, this is the first time this has happened in a long time. Yeah, Cambodia calling. I, I'm, I'm going to blame the, the Dayquil. But, um, <clears throat> yes, but they, they <laughs> what, what was that? Well, it was, the, it, was the, it was the orange and not the blue, so I'm pretty sure I, I'm all right there. Uh, but they were worried that once they started comparing stories, that their family would come off looking bad in comparison to their new friends. And they both were, uh, they found out, you know, once they got to comparing notes, that both families were at least somewhat screwed up, muddling their way through marriage and parenthood the best they knew how. And of course, the dirty little secret is that it doesn't really matter who these two uh, families are because almost every family that exists could be described in this very same way. I'll go even further, further and say that nearly every person, including those who clean up nicely, who put a smile on their face and make it to church every Sunday or nearly every Sunday, every person has things in their lives that they don't want anyone else to know about, things that they desperately want to keep under wraps and keep hidden from pretty much everyone else, sometimes even their spouse. We're starting this a new four or five week series of messages today called simply Fail. And the tagline for this series is on the cover of the bulletin. And it tells you everything you really need to know. And the tagline is disappointed with yourself, cheer up, you're in good company. So I came up with that. I thought that was kind of clever and everything like that. I gave it to Ruth and said to put this on, to make sure this is on the front cover of the bulletin. She produces the bulletin, and, she, and uh, what she does is she gives a draft, and I look over it, and I think, okay, this looks good, and this looks bad, and then I'm supposed to be a proofreader. 
And some of you may have noticed. So, so uh, on, uh, on Friday, we get this done, and she says, does that look good? And I said, I think it looks pretty good. I can't see anything. I said, no doubt my wife could see something, find something wrong. So Pam came by to get me for us to go out to lunch, and they were all, all these bulletins. They're a really cool cover. was stacked up nicely by the front door when they were when you came in. And Pam says, okay. I said, what do you see? And she goes, there's two typos right on the front cover of the bulletin. Or, or dis- there's one typo. Disappointed is spelled, but it has one S's and two P's, which I knew. And I could put it all off on Ruth and blame her, but I'm her proofreader. I'm the backup on that. So we were disappointed in ourselves. And... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, I can't, that was before I was on the day quill. I wasn't feeling too bad on Friday, but uh, so anyway, I can't, I can't put that off on anyone else. But you know, here's the deal. Since we made the decision to move to Cambodia, I've been doing a lot of reading and thinking about how God's love transforms people. And now that is a, a basic tenet of the gospel, and so it's sort of a no-brainer. But what I'm talking about is that This is the model that they use in Cambodia when they take these young girls who have been raped and abused and neglected and and treated like garbage. And first they they tell them that they're loved. They've they've all heard that before, oftentimes by their Johns and things like that. But they tell them that they're loved. And they tell them that they love them. They tell them that God loves them. They tell them that there's there's a future for them. And then they proceed to show them that they are loved. They, they teach them. They, they teach them reading and writing and history and, and science, everything that they need to know, how to, uh, how to read and write both the Khmer, Cambodian, and English. They, they counsel them. There's, uh, the, the ratio of counselors to, to, uh, to uh, clients there is just phenomenal off the charts. They, they feed them. Some of them have never, they're suffering from malnutrition. They attend to their health needs. They have health needs that would make most of us uh, cringe to think about. They give them a, a safe place and and every day they reinforce this message that these poor girls are, are not garbage, but they are precious daughters of a loving God. Now, it takes time. Often it, it takes months. But eventually that message gets through. And, and these girls come to believe it. And they they internalize, it, internalize it, as we say. And in, in the vast majority of cases, that love will fundamentally change that young lady for the better. Now, of course, they, they train them in a vocation, and, and they give them life skills too, but the fundamental change here is really one of, of understanding. They come to understand that rather than being garbage, they are loved by God and by people acting in His name, and that is the foundation for the change that happens in their lives. So I've been thinking about that process a lot. You know, we saw the Pink Room movie, and, and I've just been, we've been in touch with the, the people that are working in that process uh, over there in Cambodia, and we're going to do a Skype meeting with Don and Bridget tomorrow, and starting the process of getting to know the situation we're going to go into next spring when we go there. And we have been looking at some of the most challenging teachings of Jesus, both here in the messages and in the, in the, in the, the, the Bible school class across the hall, the first hour there. And... <clears throat> We've been looking at these uh, very challenging teachings of Jesus and see how so many of them direct us to do this, this very thing, to show God's love to people in radical, even sometimes ways that might be viewed as, as weird, you know, and just really step out there and show who we are for God. And, and this is all in hopes of this love, these, this, uh, this avenue uh, of this this love being channeled into people, that it would be an avenue for God to get that transformation, to jumpstart that transformation in their lives. That seems to be what it takes. And that led me to thinking about how, 
how our church is likely to be seen by people coming in here who've, who've never been here before. Now, I happen to think that we are a pretty good group. We love Jesus here, and I was going to say I would punch anybody who would argue differently. But what, what, I'm, what I mean to say is that, you know, we're not some kind of social club or some kind of a mutual admiration society. We are people who are we're thankful to God for Jesus. We're, we're thankful for our families. We're thankful for our community, for our children, for our parents, for all the stuff that's blessings in our lives, for the health that we have. And we're thankful for the promise of eternal life when, when our health fails. We express our gratitude in worship and in service and in how we love and take care of each other. They will know they are Christians by their love, you know. Sometimes, yes, we, we fight a bit or otherwise we get on each other's nerves, but we're also pretty good at, at getting over that kind of stuff too. It doesn't ruin our day or ruin our, our, our church or anything like that. But I worry, excuse me, that we are still a little bit too willing to let people believe the best about us even if we know that what they're believing is not the whole truth. You see, I'm convinced that we're all much more screwed up on the inside than the image we present to each other suggests. The truth is, I used to think that as a, as a person matured, both physically and spiritually, meaning that as they got older and as they had been a follower of Jesus Christ for longer, as the years piled on, then their actions, their, their words, and their attitudes, and their thoughts would kind of automatically mature as well. And my reasoning was, well, you know, I was thinking, well, I know that I struggle with issue X. And I know that other people my age and younger struggle with that same temptation or maybe a similar one. And, and their failings and their sins, I can, I can understand where they're coming from. But then I would think, but I'm sure that such and so, who has been a follower of Jesus a lot longer than I have been, no longer struggles with, and then, you know, insert your particular sin or temptation here, whether it's substance abuse or insecurity or selfishness or lust or materialism or heartlessness or stinginess or, or what have you. Well, what I've observed is that while people often do have success leaving these things behind, age and spiritual longevity are, are, are no guarantee of spiritual maturity and success in the battle for holiness in a person's life. The truth is I have known plenty of older people who have a, a lot of serious problems in their lives. And granted, there are often different issues than what a younger person wrestles with. But in reality, they're often struggling with their sinful natures just as much as someone much younger, must let, much less experienced in their faith is. Let me read you something written by, on this subject by the late Michael Spencer. He was a fellow who wrote some amazing stuff on his website, internetmonk.com, before he uh, passed away from cancer just a few years ago. He said, why are we, after all that confident talk of new life, new creation, the power of God, healing, wisdom, miracles, the power of prayer, why are we so weak? Why do, why do so many good Christian people turn out to be just like everyone else? Divorced, depressed, broken, messed up, full of pain and secrets, addicted, needy, and phony. I thought we were different. Evangelicals love a testimony of how screwed up I used to be. They aren't interested in how screwed up I am now. But the fact is that we are screwed up then, now, all the time in between, and it's, safe, it's a safe bet to assume the rest of the time we're alive. But, will we, but we will pay $400 to go hear a Bible teacher tell us how we are only a few verses, prayers, and CDs away from being a lot better. And we will sit quietly or applaud loudly when the story is retold. I'm really better now. I'm a good Christian. I'm not a mess anymore. 
I'm different from other people. Now, I don't want to offend anyone's sensibilities. I'm obviously not too worried about it either, but, or bruise any egos. But let's be honest with ourselves, uh, at least with ourselves, for a little bit. Is there anyone here who is not disappointed with their spiritual condition on a semi-regular basis? And I'm not talking about doubting your salvation. I would hope that we have all gotten beyond worrying over whether or not we are saved every time we sin. Oh, I did something wrong. I need to repent. I'm wondering, am I still saved? That's, that's garbage. But from where I'm standing, I see people with issues, to put it nicely. I know that when someone tells me about the fears they have, the things they perceive as a failure of faith, or flaws that they think should maybe disqualify them from serving or being accepted by God and His people, I am sympathetic because usually I have the same, very, same misgivings about myself. And really, it's come down to this. My time for being up here and doing this is, is now measured in months. Next month, we're going to have a, what we're, a, a date certain for when I will not be the pastor anymore. We don't know exactly when that'll be, but we're going to set a, a, a hard out for me on that. And that's as it should be, as it needs to be. But when I began to take stock of what I wanted to teach about in my remaining Sundays here, this issue was foremost in my mind. See, we are not all right, you and me. We are broken inside, and not nearly, we are not nearly as loving and forgiving and moral and upright and selfless as we let people think we are. Most of us realize this is true about ourselves, but we are still content to let everyone believe us each to be better than we actually are. The thing is, we don't do ourselves or each other any favors when we carry on like this. When people come in here, we try to put our best foot forward, and, and that's great. But we also need to somehow let them know that we don't have it all together. That our messed up phase is not a thing of the past, but it is part of who we are right now. We need to be clear about the fact that following Jesus means that we're always fighting within ourselves. Quite often losing that fight, but then fighting some more. All the while knowing Jesus has our backs. Paul talks about the reason for this in 2 Corinthians 4, that starting at chapter, verse 7. He says, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Paul says that God's light's in us, but our bodies are like clay pots. They're, they're fragile. They're prone to wear and tear and weakness. And like anything fragile that is used in the everyday world, we're going to suffer and be broken and, and have struggles in life. He even says that our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus. And I don't think he's talking merely about aging and sickness and, and, and ill health and death, but about the susceptibility that is just built into our bodies towards sin. The Bible talks about the flesh a lot being the nature, the avenue of, of sin to come into our lives. It's the flesh. So I want to look at another passage that Paul wrote, and we have slides for this one. It's a little bit longer. It's in Romans chapter 7, starting with verse 14. So, you want to, yeah, there we go. Yeah, get that one and get the contrast up. Paul writes, <clears throat> So my trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. 
I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what, uh, that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree with that the law is good. So I am not the one doing the wrong. It is the sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is the sin in me, sin living in me, that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Now, Paul was talking about God's law, and there's some question about how specific he was being. Was he talking about a general law or, or specifically Old Testament law? But for our purposes, let's understand and agree that he was, and let's understand and agree that he's talking about God's rules for behavior, for what defines a, a good person in life, in everyday life. You know, we know what it means to be a good person, and we all want to be good people, right? Well, Paul's saying, in my heart, I know what kind of person I want to be. But it seems that no matter how much I want to be that kind of person, I end up being someone else. Someone who knows what they shouldn't do, but who does it anyway. I know I'll feel better about myself if I do what God wants me to do. I know God will be happier if I follow his guidelines and his rules. But it's like there's a part of me that says, well, the heck with that, and then goes off and leads me to do just what I don't want to be doing in the first place. See, he's describing almost this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of scenario where he knows what he should do, but then he goes and does just the opposite. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that I am embarrassingly, intimately familiar with exactly what he's talking about here. I know what it's like to know what I should do, to actually want to do what is right, but then end up somehow doing just the opposite. It's like when you're holding on to something fragile. You're, you're walking around your house and you've got a glass or a piece of china or something like that in your hand. And, and you know, you trip or something happens. You see it start to fall or maybe it starts to go off a saucer or something like that. And you, and you feel it. So you see it start to fall or you feel it slip out of your hands if you're grasping it. And, and part of your mind is just trying to get your hand to, to, you know, you're doing this kind of business. Like you're some kind of juggler trying to grab that glass. But another part of your mind is going, okay, it's too late. That thing's going down. It's going to hit the floor. There's not a thing you can do about it. Much of the time, that's the way it is with sin in our lives. We can see where it's headed. We can say, well, if I do that or I start thinking this way, then I'm going to end up where, where I've been before, shame and guilt and regret and everything like that. And we know we shouldn't do it, but we end up going that direction anyway. Like Paul says, when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. That is the nature of our earthly existence. Much of the time, it's, it's, you know, it's one step up and, and two steps back. Most days, it might be one step up and one step back. Occasionally, it's going to be two steps up and only one step back. And on really great days, three steps up and one step back. We fight the good fight. Many times, we lose. But then we get up and we start fighting again. 
That is the Christian life. And anybody who tells you differently is most likely selling something. Now you might be thinking, what what about all those New Testament passages that tell us to pursue holiness? What about the commands to be holy as as he is holy, to flee from sin, to, to not live according to the flesh? Aren't those men for us? Well, of course they are. But the fact is, Uh, that when we sign on to follow Jesus, we're signing on to playing catch-up in this life. In Philippians 3, Paul writes about this desire, his desire to do the right by Jesus, to fight the fight against sin in his life and to identify with Jesus more and more in his life and in his death. It acknowledges that he says, I haven't arrived yet. I know I'm not there, but I'm, I'm trying to get there. But he's doing everything he can to chase after Jesus. And then he says in verse 3, 6, chapter 3, Philippians 3, verse 16, only let us live up to what we have already attained. The idea is that, you know, we've been given the gift, the prize, the trophy. Now our job is just to live up to that promotion, to try to do that, and to try to be worthy of that prize that has already been awarded to us. So much of the time we end up heaping guilt upon ourselves and upon each other with these unrealistic ideas of that tomorrow is going to be, I'm going to sin a little bit less than I did today, and the next day I'm going to sin a little bit less than, than that, and, and the next year even a little bit less than this year, and eventually I'm going to get to where I don't sin at all. That's not realistic. That's not how it plays out in people's lives, at least not the way we think it's uh, going to. Yes, you know, we struggle, and sometimes we win a battle. People can beat addictions. They can beat bad habits. That that kind of stuff happens. But the war has been pre-won for us by Jesus. We will not fully realize that victory in this life, but we do need to understand that it is a done deal. Let me give you another bit of wisdom from the late Michael Spencer. He said, faith is discontentment with what I am and satisfaction with all God is for me in Jesus. Faith is discontentment with what I am and satisfaction with all God is for me in Jesus. It's a bit of a a mental mental gymnastic kind of game, but it's the reality of the Christian life. We're playing catch-up. We will fight sin in our lives, and and sometimes we're going to lose. Often we're going to lose. And that's just the way it's going to be. However, in the end, we will win because Jesus died for us and he defeated sin. So, you know, in the next few weeks, we're going to look at a, at a drunk in the Bible. We're going to look at a person who, who suffered from depression, at a, at a man who was a terrible husband and an even worse father. And we're going to look at a woman whose sexual sin was revealed in the most embarrassing way possible. We're going to look at their stories and see that not only did they not die of embarrassment, but that God did not reject them. In fact, we'll see just the opposite is what really happened. Rather than rejected, they were embraced by God. And I want to finish with two more quotations. And I found this, this one this last week and I put it on, a, on Facebook, so maybe you've seen it. It, it, it. it comes from one of Eugene O'Neill's lesser-known plays, and it's uh, one character is telling his son this. He says, uh, yes, man is born broken. He lives by mending. The grace of God is glue. Man is born broken. He lives by mending. The grace of God is glue. Isn't that great? Now, to show you that I'm not being highfalutin by quoting O'Neill here, uh, let me quote the late George Carlin, who expressed much the same idea when he said, just because you got the monkey off your back doesn't mean the circus has left town. That's, That's the truth of the Christian life right there. 
The monkey's off our back, but the circus hasn't necessarily left town. People say, well, that church is like a circus. Okay, that sounds about right. (laughs) We are not all right. And we will not be all right this side of heaven. But that is not the end of the world because Jesus has our backs. God has us covered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and for your love and for all that's shown to us. We know we don't deserve it. And more important, or just as importantly, we know that we can't earn it retroactively. That we cannot be good enough once we've been forgiven to earn your forgiveness after the fact. Help us to fight the fight against sin in our lives, to fight for holiness, to be people who are more like your son Jesus Christ. But help us to be confident enough in your grace and secure enough in your love to know that when we fail, that you have us covered that there is nothing that uh, we could do that would be unforgivable, it would be beyond the pale, and that you would say, enough, you're out of here. Help us to be secure in you, to love you enough to, to not want to sin, but to know you well enough that when we do, to know that you forgive our sins. Help us to know your grace and your love. In Jesus' name, amen.